So, go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn with me to the book of James. This is where we've been for 2017 so far, and we've been thinking a lot about a, a handful of things in the book of James. And we're going to be in chapter 3, and we're going to read the verse, first 12 verses in chapter 3. There's a handful of things that we've been discussing as we've, as we've spent time together in the book of James, and those have to do um, with uh, really three main themes, three things that James is, is trying to communicate to his readers. First, um, it's good to remember to recall what James's readers are going through, what they're thinking about. Um, these are people who, Jewish Christians, who have trusted Christ, who have professed the name of Jesus, and who are spread out um, around Jerusalem. They probably were dispersed after Stephen was martyred at the beginning of Acts, um, and they went out, and they were enduring, in these contexts where they found themselves, they were enduring some significant persecution, probably mostly as it pertains to uh, their, 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 uh, their socioeconomic status, um, and they were enduring this persecution as a result of professing the name of Jesus, being Jews who profess the name of Jesus. So they would have got this letter, they would have, they would have read it together, probably in a home, probably around a meal, they would have been thinking about this together, and James wants to address a handful of things for them in the way that they should be living as it pertains to um, the radical reorientation that has come about in the world because of Jesus. So, as we look at this book, we've seen a few things. We're in chapter 3 now. Um, we've spent a significant amount of time in chapter 1 because it kind of set the stage for us. So a couple of weeks in chapter 2, last week, Mark preached to us about the relationship between uh, faith and works and how the fact that it is a package deal and well, faith without works is, is essentially dead. And so when we get to chapter 3, we see that James maybe begins to shift gears a little bit. Um, there are sort of these three things that James continues to, 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 to hammer home for his readers. He says, let's face trials as those who understand that they, they the trials, are happening here, but our focus is on, a, on an eternity secured for us in Christ. This is a focus that we have. The trials that we face here are light, they are momentary, they are not ongoing, they are small compared to eternity. Secondly, sort of flowing out of that understanding is that having this view of trials is godly wisdom, not worldly wisdom. Set apart against worldly wisdom. Worldly wisdom says, look at the here and now. This is all that there is. The here and now is all that there is. Worldly or godly wisdom says, no, look through what you see now. Look through what you see now into the eternity that's been promised, that's been secured to you by Jesus. And then finally, James continues to communicate to us this idea that the poor and the downcast are the ones that the kingdom favors because of the comforts that this world offers don't cloud their vision of eternity. If we look back at verse 5 and chapter 2, uh, James says very clearly, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? Rhetorical question, the answer is... Yes. So we come then to uh, James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, and let's read this together. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. 
we put bits in the whole, in the mouths of horses so that they will obey us. We guide their whole bodily bodies as well. Look at ships also. Though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting the fire, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every, every kind of beast and bird, reptile, and sea creature can be tamed, and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. Does a spring pour forth both the same opening, both fresh water and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. So these 12 verses, these, these verses that James starts out with in, in chapter 3 as we look at it together, coming out of chapter 2 and this, this, uh, this discussion of faith and works, I think James wants to communicate um, something very clear to us related to the tongue, but related to life in general, um, and it's this. James wants his readers to see that small things can create big problems. The tongue, for example, is a small member but does great things. Again, James wants his readers to see small things can create big problems. The tongue is a small member, but it does great things. So as I was processing this text uh, throughout the course of this week, and a question came to my mind, um, as a parent of young children, what if, what if peas were important? What if peas were important? I'm talking about the little green vegetable thing, for those of you who don't like them. What if peas were important? And for parents of young children, or if you've had young children at some point in your life, you understand um, the difficulty it can be to get our kids to sit still and, and eat their food and do it regularly, um, and, and just, to, just to look at, at, at the food that we place in front of them and not turn their nose up at it. We understand the difficulty of that, right? Um, at the end of a long day, moms or, or dads, maybe whoever's pre preparing dinner, you've spent... Uh, almost all of your energy, and with one last burst, you've gotten the food on the table, you've put it on the table, and you slap the peas on your children's plate, and they look at you, and they say, I don't like peas. I don't want that. And you immediately think to yourself, well, where's that coming from? Right? Where does that come from? No, you eat it. You're like, I'm, I'm your parent. I'm giving you this. I'm giving you something good. And it's sort of for lack of a better, this is the only example I can think of, this is sort of Cold War breaks out, right? So there's this Cold War. There's, no, there's nothing flying through the room, but this Cold War, sort of these, these glances, right? These glances, and looking at one another, and, and, um, and these slowly moving peas up to the mouth, one at a time, and, 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 and then this pseudo-gag happens coming out of it, and you're just like, what, what is going on? Our eyebrows raise, we look at our kids, and... We, we're like, we're in charge here. For parents, I, what I want to posit to you this morning as we look at this text, for parents, what if peas, what if you viewed these things as important, right? Sometimes we cave, sometimes we don't. Sometimes the kids sit at the table for three hours. Sometimes they, sometimes they get to get up and, and we cave in. 
What if we're, for parents, what if, what if peas were just a tool in the toolbox? And peas really aren't the point here. That's not the point. Right? And we'll get back to the peas. We'll, we'll talk through that in a bit. The point, though, is being able to actively remind uh, ourselves what their, our tables represent and what is contained on them. So, again, what on earth does this have to do with this text? We'll get there, I promise. Just hold off. File that away, file peas away in your mind, and, and we'll get back to it. But let's look then here at what James is saying to us in chapter 3, particularly verse 1. Particularly verse 1. We're going to spend actually the majority of our time on verse 1 because I think it's incredibly important. Um, James, coming, out of, coming into this text, has talked to us about faith and works, the relationship between those two things, and how we should consider them as this package deal. And if you think back to verse 21, just look up the page at, at verse 21 or the previous page. Look at verse 21 of chapter 2. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Uh, clearly Abraham is commended for his faith in Hebrews 11. Mark talked about that to us last week. He, but Abraham is commended for his faith. But James says that Abraham was justified by works, and so we kind of have this like, well, what's going on here? What, why is this, this happening? And I think this is important to, to chapter 3, verse 1. James isn't trying to deny that we're justified by faith, but rather that faith of works is dead, like he says later in last week's passage, a compartmentalized view of justification, a compartmentalized view of how we are saved is a broken view, right? You, you, you can't say, I have faith, you have works. You have to say, no, I have both. The body apart from the spirit is dead, just like he says at the end in verse 26 of chapter 2, for as the body is apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is a holistic approach and understanding of what is going on in our lives, in our world. So faith, therefore, is the, the heart that pumps the blood of works through the body. If you remove the blood, the heart is meaningless. If you remove the, if you remove the, the blood... Or, the, or, or if, you, if you remove the blood, the heart is meaningless. If you, without the heart, the blood is worthless. Just in the same way, if you remove the works, faith is meaningless. But without faith, works are worthless. So then, as we get to verse 1 of chapter 3, as we've moved through this, and remember, James' readers would have read this all together in one, so, so we should also consider what comes before and after for us in chapter 3, verse 1, that many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So notice that James wants to expand on what these works look like. He wants to show us, and the, the first thing that he comes across here, and it's sort of just one, and we sometimes I think we kind of pluck this out and say, okay, we set this over here, and then and now he's going to talk about the tongue, so we're going to talk about it over here. But he but he says, I think all these things are intricately tied together. Here's what I want to propose to you this morning why our conversation about peas, I think, will make sense in a minute. Why I think it'll make sense in a minute. Um, hear this. No believer is not a teacher. No believer is not a teacher. So every believer is a teacher. Right? Double negative. Okay. No believer is not a teacher. And if you, if you look here, if you look at this text, um, when, we, when we see it, it, what it's not saying is that you're not saying like, what you're, if you look at this and you say, no, pastor, you go apply that for yourself. 
You go take and digest that one for yourself. This one's not for me. Then we're missing the point entirely. Um, consider why. The answer is why. Consider with me a text that we consider regularly. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. Jesus' final commission before he ascends into heaven that he gives to his disciples. He says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe or to obey all that I have commanded you. Again, so, so breakdown. What, what does that mean? If, if we think about Matthew 18, or 28, 18 through 20, there's one command given. One command that the text gives us is to make disciples. One command is to make disciples. So the rest of that text is explaining how. How is it that we make disciples? How do we go about doing that? We're like, who do I go to? Who do I make disciples? Jesus says very clearly, to all nations, to all types of people. Doing what? What do I do? How do I make a disciple? Baptizing and teaching. Um, and sometimes this argument is made when considering that, that. You say, well, this is given to the disciples directly. This is given to the disciples directly. It's not given to all people. It's just to the disciples directly. And I don't think you have to go very far. In fact, you don't have to go outside of the sentence to realize the fault in that logic. You don't have to leave the sentence. No, I don't, I don't need to leave the sense. And, and, and teaching to observe all that I've commanded you is what Jesus says. That's how you make disciples. In other words, teaching them to do everything that I've told you to do. And what did, what did Jesus tell them to do to make disciples? What does it look like to make disciples? To baptize and teach. You say to observe all that I've told you to do, to obey all that I've told you to do, and it says to make disciples. First, the command isn't given to all of them. You plural is implied. The command is not for the individual, but for the community. Teaching to obey all that I've commanded you, which is to go and make disciples. In order for the disciples of the disciples to observe all that they commanded, all that Jesus has commanded, they also need to make disciples, which includes baptizing and teaching. So in one way or another, we have all become teachers. Our lives are giving instruction to others about what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Every single moment of every single day, we are giving a commentary on what it means to follow Jesus. We are giving instruction on what it means to follow Jesus. It's not just for the guy up here on Sunday. This verse is not just for the guy up here on Sunday. When you look at 3.1 and you're in Christ, you need to see that the ship has sailed. You need to see that the ship has sailed. I am teaching somebody. What now? I am instructing someone. What now? So let's go back to peas. Let's think about peas. Why are they important? When we sit down to eat a meal together, it's pointing to a handful of things. We sit down to eat a meal together. And I want to give you these because, because this is important. No, this is, we, we are so fixed in the immediate, on the temporary, that oftentimes we fail to understand why God even created these things for us to participate in. So, when we sit down to eat a meal together, it's pointing to a handful of things. That the marriage feast of the Lamb is outlined in, in Revelation 19. If those are in Christ, we've been invited to that. We will participate in that when Christ returns. And our eating together at, at the table is picturing that what is to come. 
And the marriage feast of the Lamb will sit around the table as a family, as those who have been adopted into the family of God. Just as our family sit around the table and eat together, we will consider the food that we're eating and the temporary, that satisfaction, this small amount of satisfaction that your taco brings you, or whatever it is that you have for lunch. You consider the small amount of temporary satisfaction that it gives us, and it points us to, it directs us to the eternal satisfaction that we find in Christ. And when there is something that sits at the table that we don't like to eat or drink, like in the case of our children with peas, we remember that Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath for us on the cross, and that what, that what doesn't meet our tastes is not primary to us being sustained. You say, okay, wow, that's nice. That's great. That doesn't help my kids eat their food. My admonition to you is don't be so pragmatic. Don't be so pragmatic. Don't be so practical about these things. These things I described here, the marriage feast of the Lamb, sitting together as adopted sons and daughters of God, considering food and the satisfaction that we find in Christ being all the more greater, those are far more real than the shadowy existence that we find ourselves in day to day, moment to moment. This is the radical reorientation of our thinking that needs to occur. We think that the here and now is all there is. We live like it. We're giving commentary on it. When in fact something far greater is right around the corner for us. So the question is, is your mealtime informed by eternity? Is everything that you do informed by eternity? What is, what is not informed by eternity? If your mealtime is informed by eternity, you won't cave when the kids move the nukes into Cuba. Cold War metaphor. That I, never mind. You got it. Yeah. <laughs> the, and, and so, when we focus our attention, where we focus our attention, whether it be the, the next half hour or eternity, where we place our attention at mealtime or wherever we find ourselves in our day-to-day. Because the next half hour, our instruction, the teaching that we're given, the, the commentary that we're giving on life will probably be self-centered and self-focused. We'll probably be self-centered or self-focused. If we, if we give uh, instruction with only the next half hour in mind, with only the here and now, with only the temporary in mind. But if our focus is eternal, it will probably mean that your children sit at the table for three hours, that might be painful, those peas are gone, but I guarantee will offer significant opportunities to live out the instruction, live out the command to train up a child in the way he should go, he or she should go. And this is not just behavior modification then, right? Radical reorientation of how we look at our world, Right? This is what it's about. A radical reorientation of how we look at the world. Jesus didn't come to die so that we could have a nice overlay and speak in Christian words and not swear at one another anymore. Jesus didn't come to die to do that. He came to redirect everything away from you and onto him. Okay, so we're through verse 1 now. Yeah. <laughs> So James then moves away, right? So he's thinking about 
this, this, this understanding that our lives are giving commentary, our lives are making an instruction. And I think that there's a formal under... Okay, we're still in verse 1. I think that there's a formal understanding here also of this. That many should become teachers just because of the strictness that, of the judgment that's going to come. And yet I think, again, for every believer, the ship has sailed in some respect. You're giving commentary. You are instructing someone at some point. And so what is it that you speak about the most in your world? Is it your work? Is it, is it your children? Is it, what is it? What are the things that you speak about the most? And those are probably where you're finding your work, probably where you're finding your identity, probably finding uh, an idol in your life. And so again, we're not just talking about behavior modification, but eternity-focused, Christ-centered, holy living that comes out of a reorientation that comes when you trust Christ. Okay, so now I'm done with verse 1. Verse 2, the tongue. And this is what the, the next 11 verses are going to give to us, and we'll spend a little bit of time here. And I think that verse 1 is important because when we see what comes next here, when we see what comes next in verse 2, um, there's sort of this, your Bible probably says for, we all stumble in many ways. The thrust is because. Right? If your Bible does say because. Because we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. So a couple of weeks ago, you'll recall, we were talking about um, flippant speech. Like, what does it mean to speak flippantly? About, about our world, and, and James gives a whole host of examples, things like saying, like, God is tempting me, or like in last week's passage, you say that you have faith, or you have works, and or you have faith, and I have works, right? This flippant speech that compartmentalizes faith and works. But James really opens up the scope here for us, as we look through verses 2 through 12, he really opens up the scope for us, and why should not many of us become teachers? Because, because we all stumble in many ways. What if he says, and if he doesn't stumble in what he says, what he speaks, he's perfect. And remember why. The answer, the question is why. Can we have that? Why is that important? Because of what Jesus said to his followers. He said, he said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And the heart is exceedingly wicked or deceitful above all things like Jeremiah records. And Jeremiah records God saying directly to him in Jeremiah 17, then your speech, the way that you speak, shows what you love. It demonstrates what's in your heart. And so out of the fullness of the heart, the mouth speaks, and that sin has still lurks inside of you. You can be sure that your tongue is not going to be bridled, right? For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle his old body. This is not saying, here, we've arrived. This is saying, this is everybody. This is everybody. And again, guys, this is not about swearing or general crudeness here either. Verses 2 through 12 isn't just we shouldn't walk away from this this morning and say, God doesn't want me to swear or say bad things about the person who cut me off on the way to work. If we say that, then we've missed the point. Check out the examples that James gives to the, related to the tongue, right? There's a whole host of metaphors here that he gives. A horse and a bit, and a ship and his rudder. The tongue gives direction to our actions and reveals our identity. The way we speak about our world is, is indicating our positioning towards it. He talks about a small fire and a forest. The tongue adds expression to the wickedness of our world. 
The way we speak shapes our world. It shapes our communities. We said that slander, gossip, backbiting, those have no place in the church and won't be tolerated. Why? Why? Because of what he says in verse 9. With our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing, my brothers, these things ought not to be so. There's a, a spring producing salt water and fresh water, a fig producing olives, or a grapevine producing fruit figs. We see that at the end in verses 11 and 12. This drives, again, the idea of identity. Are you a fresh water source? Then why are you producing salt water? Are you a fig tree? Then why are you producing olives if you're a grapevine? Then why are you producing figs if you're an adopted son and daughter of God? Why are you talking like ones who still belong to Satan in the world? Why is what comes out of your mouth different than what is in step with the identity that you claim? And again, these things can't be separated, right? There is no compartmentalization that comes here. If we believed, if we trusted Jesus, if we, if we said, yes, the promise that I'll be adopted by God is true, and I'm a son or daughter of the Most High, then the way that we talk, the way that we speak, should be commensurate with that. And here, here's kind of our problem as we look together at this, at this text. It's not that we don't know what we should be doing, right? This is, this is a big thing. I think we labor so much over, what should I be doing? What should I be doing? We ask the question, like, what's God's will? We ask that all the time. Consider just Colossians 3.17. Paul writes this to the church in Colossae, Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. If you can't do it in the name of the Lord Jesus, don't do it. It's pretty much that simple. Like we labor over, what should we do? What should we do? What should I do? How should I, how should I go about this? When we read our Bibles in search of what we should be doing, we will always, I guarantee it, always walk away feeling empty or defeated. What should I be doing? Because that's the way that the Bible's constructed, right? God gives us his law. He gives us his standards. Not, not necessarily to tell us, here are the things that you can do in order to get into heaven or to, to, to mend this broken relationship. He points them out to show us very clearly that we can't. Paul writes to us in, in, in Romans chapter 2. There's no way that we can, that we can the, the law serves the purpose to demonstrate God's standards, demonstrates to us that we can't get there, that we can't do it. So we, if we come to our Bibles, again, searching for what we should be doing, we're always going to walk away empty or defeated. Rather, the hope that is found is not what we should do, but what's been done by God in Jesus. So we, genuinely, we genuinely don't believe what we read in the pages of Scripture. Because where our heart stands, where we are. I think if we, if we accurately understood and lived according to every promise that God gave us in Jesus, or that is fulfilled in Christ, our lives would look very different. Jesus says, leave everything and follow me. But 99% of our week is spent trying to get our arms around more stuff. Jesus calls us to take up our cross and put to death self and self-interest, but 99% of our week is spent pursuing self and self-interest. Jesus tells us to 
rest in Him, to take on His burden, because it's easy in life. But 99% of our week is heaping heavy burdens on ourselves or on others. Jesus claims to be the bread of life, but 99% of our week is spent finding satisfaction in other things, in temporary things. Jesus says that He's the light of the world, but 99% of our week is spent stumbling around in darkness looking for self-help and self-help sources. Jesus tells us He'll always be with us. Give His Spirit to us. The same Spirit that raised Him from the dead resides inside of us. We spend our week feeling like nobody knows what we're going through or just general, general, or general loneliness. Because this, this is true, because these things happen to us. We're acting like grapevines that produce figs or fig trees that produce olives. And it bears itself out in our speech. It bears itself out in what we say. Our tongue exposes the heart and it, the tension between what our identity is in Jesus and what we're seeking to find our identity here on earth, in our work, in our parenting, in our hobbies. Fill in the blank. So, as we look then at this text, and as we spend time just maybe meditating on it throughout the course of the week, um, when I got to the conclusion here, when we start to think about the, th- the things that's contained here, I just couldn't get away from the, the notion that that part of the eternal that we were talking about earlier, the part is see through, to look through what it is that's going on in our world, right? The, 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 the command to see past it, and to understand that what we're doing here on earth is such a pale, such a pale comparison to, to what's to come. I started thinking to myself just about, and we won't do this always, but how ridiculous it is that we come to the end of a sermon every single week. We hear some words in the text explained and some of these things. Then we want practical application to understand, to understand what to go and do. What do I do now? Just tell me what to do. And, and part of that is I'm just weary of that. I mean, it, just, it doesn't make any sense for me to stand here and tell you what to do in this temporary existence when the eternal reality is where we should be fixing our thoughts and our minds. Our focus shouldn't be on what we should do this week, but again, on what's been done. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Seek his kingdom first. It's what he says to do. He says to seek my kingdom first. Because everything that we experience in this world is, is so blah. It's just as blah. And that's not helpful. That's not very descriptive. But, but I mean... Okay. If we treat this world like this is as good as it's going to get, if we treat this world like it's as good as it's going to get, if we're experiencing dramatic suffering, if you think that life, this life is as good as it's going to get, that will color how you respond to that suffering. But if you know that Jesus has gone to prepare a place for you, and you understand that that reality exceeds this one. Can you get your mind around the fact that, that we'll probably spend 75 to 80 trips around the sun here? Maybe, maybe some of our kids, though, life expectancy will be like 150 or something. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. Can you imagine how small that is in comparison to eternity? Like, think about that. 
for 10 seconds and just like blown away. It's an infinite amount of time extended into the future. It's like 10,000, a billion, a trillion, billion years. Like, none of that will... And then, and then think about the fact that there's an infinite God that we're going to go and be in perfect relationship with. Right? And that His infinite, just because, because we have infinite, an infinite amount of time to spend with Him, the infinite in His infinite nature, we will never not. We will never end up knowing or learning new things about Him and His nature and who He is. It is an eternity spent knowing God and knowing more about Him. We know that Jesus has got to prepare a place for us, a place where every good thing that you've experienced here on earth will be amplified by a billion times because of the white-hot intensity of the glory of God that's going to be pressing in around you on every side, every moment, for eternity. But there will be no inhibiting. We will not be inhibited by this the sin that now separates us from him. This life isn't all there is. It's not. This reality is this pale, monochromatic, tasteless, bland morsel in the taste buds of our eternal soul. So the peas that are pushed around our kids' plates offer us the ability to teach, the ability to speak. The ability to instruct, the ability to demonstrate that our identity is one that will inherit something so much greater. So much greater, it should bring us to our knees. Why? Because of Jesus. And again, verse 2, this is so key. But we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man able to bridle his whole body. He's the only example of the perfect man described in verse 2. Jesus is the only example of the perfect man described in verse 2. And he freely offers us that righteousness that comes out of that. He freely offers us that. He says, trust me, put your faith in me, understand that the promises of God find their yes in me. That's the good news of the, the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that when we look at the book of James, when we see this practical day-to-day -day life wisdom, and we see that the way that it comes about is looking through our current situation, the temporary, looking through it and seeing the eternal. Seeing the eternal, what God has prepared for us in eternity. We, we will not be able to do anything but to live a life that is commensurate with it. That is in step with it. But when we begin to look and we begin to recognize that these things that are aligned are not achievable for us on our own, then we come to God and we open up our hands and we say, I'm wholly dependent on you to do this. And salvation is only from you, it is not from me. It is not something that I can achieve on my own or, or work for. But that, that righteousness that is demanded by God that complete upholding of the law is now possible for us to have because of Christ. And now we rejoice. So this morning then as we shift gears, we're going to go to the Lord's table now.
for a second. We're going to observe together a broken body that should have been ours. We're going to observe, we're going to partake together in, in the juice and understand that it's the shed blood that should have been ours. We're going to proclaim Christ's death until He returns and then that bright, beautiful eternity swallows us up. And we're going to con- confess together We're going to confess together that when we go to the table, we speak as those who find their identity far too regularly in things here on earth and things not in heaven. We oftentimes do exactly what James outlines for us. We curse those who are created in the likeness of God. Then we turn around and we bless our Lord and Father with the very same mouth. But we understand then also that when we come to this, we recognize, we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes, but we recognize that when He comes, all of this will move away. All of this suffering, all of the things that we're experiencing regularly on a day-to-day basis are going to be set aside. We understand that this is a foreshadowing of the marriage supper of the Lamb. We will come together, we will look at the table, and we will be fully satisfied in what we are participating in, not because... The food is good. Not because our parents instructed us to eat our peas well. But because Jesus Christ is our sustenance. So that's why we go to the table this morning. Um, I would just encourage you. um, This is something that we participate together in regularly as a body. Um, We would ask, you're welcome to participate if you're not even a member of Buffalo City Church. We will ask that you come up and, and participate. Um, if you don't know Jesus, if you don't know what it means to have a relationship with Jesus, um, we would ask for you just to abstain, just to, just to hold off. It's for something that, something that we do together as believers. Parents, as always, I would ask you if there are small children in here, I don't see any, I can see all of you pretty quickly, um, just to exercise um, discretion for your children. If you know that they've made a profession of faith, invite them to join you. If you're not sure if they're still working on it, if you're still working on it together, just hold off. Let me pray for us, and we'll move together to the time of the Lord's table.